So reading from Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had... Um, sorry. Moreover... We have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciples us for our good, in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Well, our text today comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 3 very last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 3 and from verse 14. The um, number 7 in the book of Revelation signifies perfection, completion. So all of the letters combined are, are meant to be a picture of the church on earth. And uh, each letter finishes with the words, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, which means the messages in the book of Revelation to the seven churches are for the church of all time, uh, also for us gathered here this morning. So um, I haven't uh, brought this sermon to you today from Laodicea because I think you, this is particularly pertinent to Willerton. If you look at that title, you say, oh, now, what are we in for? Um, this is just the end of the... Um, the last sermon or the end of the series so far um, in uh, Wongan Hills um, and it's just easy for me to bring this along since I preached it last week um, but at the same time it's relevant because uh, we here at Willow are part of the church of all time and so uh, we too can benefit from God's word also from this letter to Laodicea and so uh, we read from verse 14 to the angel of the church in Laodicea write these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. 
I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love are rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I'll give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, it's a destructive attitude that we seek to combat in our gospel air work amongst the, uh, the children in the Murchison with those five schools that we visit. We encourage the children to not just wake up every morning in the doldrums and just mosey through the day, just doing enough to get through. But we, we are encouraging them, especially this year, with the values of hope and expectation to be excited about every new day. I actually get them to raise their hands and say, oh, I'm waking up in the morning and I'm so excited, I can't wait to see what's going to happen. And if it's a school day, that they should say, oh, I can't wait to get to school. Thank goodness it's not a weekend. And that they want to get there and rip into their lessons and find out what the teachers have got in store for them. And so our theme song bears that out as well. The chorus goes, wherever you lead me, I'm going to follow. I'm trusting you, God, you are good. And you should hear them sing it. We're up to the stage where they're going to start learning the, the actions this term. But the, when it comes to those words, you are good, they really punch it out. They're really excited about it. But listen to this verse. I want to live each day like anything can happen. Can't hardly wait to see what's next. I want to face this world with wonder and excitement. Face every challenge, every test. That sentiment is exactly the opposite of apathy. Apathy is what is so destructive. Apathy is what's soul, so soul-destroying. And it can get us into a cycle which if we don't check it, uh, can actually destroy lives. And so it's important to recognize how destructive it is and to see when it's taking hold in our lives so that we can put an end to it. But especially with regard to our Christian life and our walk with God, which is supposed to affect everything we do. Uh, I don't know about you, but I love um, over Easter time uh, reading those articles you find in our newspapers where people reflect on the meaning of Easter. Some of them are just absolute nonsense. Uh, others are really soul-searching and spot-on. This uh, one uh, lady, uh, she um, wrote something I thought was 
just so in tune with what we're looking at today. Her name's Angela Shanahan. She wrote in the Australian Weekender over Easter. She wrote this. Easter encapsulates the Christian message about suffering, death, and resurrection, and the divine nature of Jesus the Christ and the spiritual Messiah. And then she says this. Yet apathy is widespread among people who formally practice Christianity. And worse than apathy is downright hostility and ridicule, which has become culturally acceptable. So she speaks of the apathy, which is part and parcel of the life of those who once professed Christ, who once attended church, who once worshipped, but now no longer do so. And for them, they couldn't care less anymore. That's what apathy is. It's indifference. Just could, couldn't care anymore. But we don't find apathy only with what we call lapsed Christians, those who've wandered away. Uh, apathy is also to be found within the church. It's something that if we're not careful, can find its way, especially in a church that's well off. A church where everything is there, all the programs exist. And this apathy can be so destructive. When we take a look at apathy in this context, then we see a picture before us in this letter to Laodicea. Because Laodicea was the apathetic church. In the other seven letters, we, we find a mixture of churches. Two of them had only praise given to them by Jesus. There was nothing there that he drew out that they needed to work on. Just praise. With a number of other churches, there was praise, but also, yeah, you've got this going on and you need to address this. There was one other church, there was no praise at all. But Laodicea was the worst of the lot. And so when we take a look at this, and it's sin of apathy. There's much for us to, to reflect on and to come before the Lord in prayer. And so as we take a look at the church of Laodicea, to, to seek to learn what Christ was saying to her and, and what that may mean for us, let's understand that when you go to the book of Revelation and you take a look at these seven letters, each letter contains elements of the first chapter. You get this beautiful vision of Jesus in the first chapter. And you find elements of that back again. And I've mentioned that at the beginning of the service. But also, if you do your research and take a look at the cities where these churches were to be found, you'll find that there are things about each city that you find back within the church. And so it is with Laodicea. Let me just point it out to you. And hopefully you'll say, wow, I never noticed that before. But why does Jesus address the church the way he does? Well, let's have a look. First of all, the city didn't have its own water supply. It had to pipe in water from hot springs six miles away. So you can imagine that that water was coming in from quite a distance and arrived lukewarm coming from hot springs. Also, it was famous for its wealth. In uh, 60 AD, 60 years after Christ, there was an earthquake that just destroyed the city. And, and as in our day, so in those days, uh, then the government stepped in and would seek to help rebuild the city. Do you know what Laodicea said to the Roman Empire? No, thank you. We've got it. We've got all the wealth we need. We'll do it ourselves. They rebuilt the city themselves after the earthquake. That's how wealthy they were. 
They're also very uh, well known for the seamless garments that they made. Garments made of black glossy wool. And then finally, they're also well known for medicinal powder, which was manufactured in Laodicea as an eye salve. Fancy that, they already had eye salves in those days. Laodicea was well known for all of these things. And now take a look at how Jesus addresses the church. In Revelation 3.18, he says to the church, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. Remember, she thought she was rich. I counsel you, buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. And white clothes, remember what they're famous for? White clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so you can see. And remember how they piped in the water from the hot springs? That water was nauseating to drink if you drank it straight away. What does the Lord say to her? So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. So you see how all that detail about the city is, is so important to understand what Jesus is saying and what words he's using when he addresses this church. The, the church, in, in, in some respects, spiritually, is like the city. And so this lukewarmness, this, this apathy that existed in the church demonstrated itself in those two ways, a reliance on itself, but also self-deception. It had a picture of itself that wasn't true. Uh, you may have come across someone who's delusional, someone who thinks this is you know, true about themselves, but we know it's not at all. Well, Laodicea was delusional. They just didn't have a right understanding of themselves. Remember what we read in uh, verse 17 of Revelation 3. You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You say this, and Jesus comes straight back at them and says, but this is the reality. This is what you're denying. And he brings out those same things again with regard to, to wealth, about blindness, and about the need for clothing. It keeps coming back, those, those things. Their sin wasn't new. It's something that God had long ago with the people of Israel coming out of Egypt had warned them against. In, in, in Isaiah 12, 13, we find it as well. In Isaiah 12, uh, 13, we read, When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Remember what we read? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Way back there in Isaiah's day again. What do we discover? Israel had a false picture of itself, thought everything was right with God so long as they kept up the offerings. And God says, stop bringing your offerings. They're meaningless to me. In Deuteronomy 8, 7, 17 to 18, which I just referred to a second ago, it was the same. You may say to yourself, the Lord said to Israel, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth 
and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. They're going to go into the, the land of flowing with milk and honey. Remember that? Everything was going to be perfect. They were going to have a plentiful supply. They were going to be wealthy. And God says, when you enter the land, beware. When you get all these things that you do not forget me, you may say to yourself, it's by my hard work I have gained all this. And the Lord says to them, be careful. Remember, you could only do the hard work. You only had the health. You only had the job. You only had the business because I gave it to you in the first place. Israel was apathetic going into the promised land. They didn't heed God's word and they indeed end up in Desire's day giving meaningless worship. And so was the case in Laodicea. But what about today? How does this attitude of apathy present itself today? As I did a bit of research about this, I came across this pastor called Chris Noland in an article on the internet called The Greatest Sin of the Church, Apathy. And this is what he had to say. And it's important because it connects with what you find in Laodicea. He says there, I'm greatly concerned over the fact that so few people have any desire to serve in the church. Those who do serve are getting burned out and are slowly fading away. And there's very little excitement. There is very little passion. There is no vision. I see parents who are setting poor examples to their children by putting other things ahead of church attendance and just simply being lazy when it comes to the things of God in the church. I've also witnessed Satan's most destructive and subtle attacks by using so-called Christians to spread lies and deceitful doctrines. However, the cause of such attacks and spiritual decline is the fact that we've let our guard down. We have gotten to the point where we just don't care anymore. We are tired. We are weary. We are not willing to fight. Spiritual apathy has set in. And that's something I... I've seen over the, the decades of service that the Lord has by his grace given to me. So often it keeps coming back to the same people in the church to do the things in terms of leadership, in terms of the different programs of the church. And it can be, I don't know what the case in Willerton is, I have a, a, a different image of, of Willerton, hopefully it's a correct image. But uh, it can be the case in many churches that it's just the same people and they eventually burn themselves out. And I can relate to what he says here about that. Indeed, apathy can present itself in many ways. And one of the things he points out to, and he, he gives three different causes for, for apathy in the church. And number one is what we saw in Deuteronomy, what we see in Isaiah, and what we see in Laodicea. Wealth. Being well off. The fact that we don't feel dependent upon God. See, the, the more we, we gain in terms of our ability to look after ourselves wealth-wise, the less dependence, if we're not careful, the less dependence we feel upon God. Things are a bit tight, that's all right, we'll just tighten our belts, we'll do this and that and it'll all, all come good. And we've got that big superannuation nest egg that's coming up, that'll be fine, that'll tide us over too in our retirement. If we're not careful, we can fall, fall into the world's trap of self-dependence. 
We depend upon ourselves and we don't feel that we need God anymore. That's what God warned Israel about in Deuteronomy. When you accrue all this, do not forget your God. He's the one who gave you the ability to accrue it in the first place. Listen to what he says about this, this, uh, this pastor. As we amass creature comforts, there can be a corresponding sag in the spirit. There can be a comfortable, situated, uninspired sort of spiritual complacency. This is apathy. Living as we are in a world brimming with material prosperity, it can affect any one of us. It can affect me. I've got to guard against it all the time, I can tell you. Apathy in terms of our wealth, both individually and as a church, is a trap. We need to be aware of it. Trials, he says, is another cause for apathy. We can just run dry. If, if you have a bad spell of illness, or if you get that diagnosis with regard to cancer, and it goes on. We've got a, a friend of ours in, in Kimira, came to the Lord through an evangelism program. Um, she and her husband lived across the road at the back of the church in Anala in, in Brisbane. And uh, our kids still call them Uncle Mick and, uh, and Auntie Pam, adopted them as aunt and uncle. Well, she's got cancer at the moment. She's been through multiple uh, numbers of uh, uh, chemo. And she's had major surgery. Um, and now she's back on to radiotherapy and then chemo again. And she's been twice back to hospital for an infection, a, a massive infection. Only just back, she called us last night, only just back. Many Christians find when they have that sort of trial that doesn't give up, it just saps the energy. Um, I know someone uh, quite well who has a daughter um, who suffers. He's not a Christian, she is. And the stumbling block for him to coming to faith is why would God allow this? trials, the trials that we go through can just sap our spiritual energy, energy and eventually lead to apathy. We just don't care anymore. But one of the most deadly ones or causes is coasting. Um, don't know about you, but uh, when I was a kid, I'm going back to the 50s now, uh, when I was a kid, one of my favorite things to do was get a, an old car tire, didn't have the rim in it, and go up onto the, the gravel road, we didn't have a tar road where we lived, um, get a stick and just hit that tire and run up and down the road with it. You'd think I'm mad. But I got heaps of fun out of doing that. Parents loved it. I just exhausted myself and was ready for sleep when I had to go to sleep. But to keep that tire going, you had to keep the momentum. And if you wanted to go fast, you just hit it faster. And if you wanted to just go slow, you, you just hit it enough to maintain the momentum so it didn't wobble and fall down. One of the deadliest things in terms of apathy for a church is to hit the tire just enough to keep it going. Don't let it wobble. Don't let it fall down. Just keep the programs going. Just keep the ministry going. Just enough to maintain momentum. That's apathy. 
when we consider who God is, when we consider who Christ is, when we consider the calling that we have to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that Jesus wants to build his church through us. And when it's completed, he's coming back to take us home. How can you be apathetic about that? Why would you want to just tap the tire enough to keep it going but no more? And yet, so many churches fall into that trap. And believe it or not, that's one of the, the greatest dangers for a vacant church. Especially if the vacancy goes for a long time. Consider poor Australind, five years now into vacancy. Can you imagine you being five years in vacancy? You're praying that someone will come this year or next year. Uh, the church I left to go to Perth, St. Mary's in Sydney, they were vacant three years before they got their pastor. It's easy for churches to go into pause. We'll just tap the tire enough to keep it going while we wait for the next minister. And when that happens, apathy sets in. And so first of all, for the church council, your church council, the responsibility is to keep the church looking at the vision that God has given, not the vision they give you, but the vision God has given the church. Go, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The church council should be busier, not less busy, in terms of what the church does. They've got to pick up what the minister used to do. So not go into pause, not bring, scale everything back because he's not there anymore, but no, they need to pick up the slack there and they need to keep it moving as a team. And I know these guys, they're well able to do it. That's one thing. Also, the church council needs to keep up the spiritual development of its people through Bible studies and pastoral visitation. That shouldn't lag because there's no pastor. And then connecting with the community. That shouldn't be given up. More and more ideas should be given to the congregation and the congregation should give it to church council. How can we connect with our community so that we can go make disciples amongst the people amongst whom we live? Let me pass something by you to think about. When it comes to a vacancy, you do realize there's a huge amount of money that's no longer needed to pay a stipend. Okay? I'm talking in the order of about eighty dollars to $100,000 for the package. Now, an apathetic church would say, great, we can give less because we don't need so much. But show me in Scripture anywhere where it says our giving is tied to whether we've got a minister or not. It's tied to how much the Lord has given us, not whether we've got a minister. Giving shouldn't fluctuate according to whether you're vacant or whether you have a pastor. But think about this. Rather than go into pause because you don't have a pastor, with all this money that should be still coming in but no longer needed because the, the, the stipend isn't required, imagine what could be done now in this community with so much money being available. Not being saved, but being put into evangelistic outreach. I mean, 
Look at the news and you see how many people are in dire straits because their rent's gone up. And so often single parents or parents with children with special needs can't afford the huge rents and are going out living in cars. How many of people like that might be in the suburbs around this church? Imagine what this church could do in the name of Christ for people like that with the amount of money now available. So can you see that with regard to coasting, the danger is that we don't see those opportunities, we don't recognize them. I'm not saying this is what you need to do. I'm just saying this is just one thing you could do to avoid apathy and then realizing an opportunity you don't have when you've got a pastor. Because all of a sudden, all this money is available. Pray about it. Think about it. See where the Lord leads you. But when you take a look at Laodicea, it wasn't like that at all. Laodicea just couldn't care less about the things of God. And so you would think that Christ would say, I've had enough. I'm, I'm going to take your, your candle from its lampstand. At the beginning of the book of Revelation, there's a lampstand that Jesus is, is standing amongst. And, and in that lampstand are seven candles. And if a, a candle is taken from the lampstand, it means that church will no longer exist. And Jesus does threaten one of the churches with removing their, lamp, uh, their light. But he doesn't do that with Laodicea. Don't know about you, but I'd be very tempted to say, well, that's enough. You obviously aren't fair dinkum. You don't care. But listen to what he says in Revelation 3.19. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Jesus doesn't want the end to this church. Jesus doesn't want to be rid of them. Jesus loves this church. And so he, he rebukes it. And he seeks to discipline it. Why? Because he wants them to come back. He wants their heart to be right with him. And so he says, it's because I love you that I'm rebuking you through this letter. You see that in Deuteronomy 8.5. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord God disciplines you. And we read that in Hebrews, didn't we? If we're illegitimate children, well... That quite possibly can mean that the parent doesn't care about us. That's the assumption being drawn in that passage in Hebrews. But God loves us and therefore he, he rebukes and he disciplines and he calls us to repentance. So how do we fight apathy? If Jesus loves us so much and, and calls us to be aware of this and if we see it in ourselves as individuals and if we see it creeping in as a church... How do we avoid it? How, how do we turn aside from it? Well, firstly, to be consciously walking close to God. Consciously walking close to God. Depending upon Him for everything. Let me read to you again from Deuteronomy 8, verses 10 to 14. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God. See, praise Him. If we praise Him, when we've eaten and are satisfied, we're remembering where it came from. Okay, so praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws and decrees that I'm giving to you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, that is if you don't praise the Lord, otherwise when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, your heart will become proud. 
and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So that's the first thing. To avoid apathy as a congregation and as an individual, consciously walk close to God. Be consciously dependent upon him for everything. Don't say, well, we're a big congregation, we've got heaps of money, we can pay our bills, we're fine. That's what Laodicea said. Live in conscious dependence upon God. And then the second thing is keep things in balance. In Proverbs 38 to 9, there's a beautiful little prayer. It says, keep falsehood and lies far from me. Remember Laodicea said, I'm this and I'm that, but it was deluding itself. Well, the prayer, first of all, says, keep me from that. Keep me from falsehood and lies. And then it says, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who's the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. You see the balance? The writer saw the danger of apathy. Don't make me stinking rich so that I forget you and don't feel a need for you. And don't make me poor so that I steal and then bring shame to your name. Give me that, that balance. And so out of sheer grace, Jesus comes to the church, rebukes her, but then presents her with wonderful promises. One of those promises contains uh, a, a verse here um, that you often find or used to find in pictures of Jesus. And you probably never realized it had to do with the worst of the seven churches. Listen to this. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And the children are actually going to get that lesson in um, week three of term two. And they're going to be learning the song, Ask, Seek, Knock. But uh, can you imagine that? Here's this church, so apathetic. And Jesus says, I'm at the door. I'm knocking. Open it and let's eat together. Can you see the grace? Can you see the love, the mercy? God wants to sit down in Christ and eat with this church for things to be right. He goes on to say in verse 21, to him who overcomes, I'll give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcome and sat down with my father on his throne. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Jesus rose into heaven after the resurrection. He sat at the right hand of the father. And he says he, he, he actually sat on his father's throne with his father. And what does Jesus say to this worst of all the churches? To him who overcomes, that person will sit with me on my throne. What grace. What love. What mercy. I can't tell you exactly what that means. H how do we sit with Jesus with him on the throne? Must be a pretty big throne. What I do know is that it means a position of privilege. A position of honor. For a church that was the worst. In Luke 22, 29 to 30 we read, 
And I confer on you a kingdom, Jesus is talking to the disciples. I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. See, this isn't new imagery. Jesus said it to the disciples before his death. You're going to sit on thrones. You're going to eat with me at my table, at the king's table. You're going to eat with me. But you're going to sit on thrones and you guys are going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And of course, here in Revelation again, we see that we're going to indeed reign with Christ. We're going to be priests in the kingdom and reign with him forever and ever. And so it's amazing that this honour is being promised to a people so apathetic. So we learn of the love that Jesus has for us as church. We, we learn of the mercy, of the patience, of the grace. But we also have learned of the danger of apathy. And so we're going to uh, finish with a prayer uh, in song. And I'm just going to recite a couple of uh, uh, word, words to your or lines from the, the hymn O Great God it says help me now to live a life that's dependent remember we need to be dependent upon God help me to live a life that's dependent on your grace keep my heart and guard my soul don't, don't let me become delusional about where I really am if I'm wandering off let me know Okay, keep my heart and guard my soul from the evils that I face. You are worthy to be praised with my every thought and deed. O great God of highest heaven, glorify your name through me. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we give you thanks. And we're humbled when we consider how much you love the church. We've seen in church history and also in the history of Israel how churches and, and your people have strayed. But in your great patience and, and according to promises that you've made to send the Savior and also through him to forgive our sins and also that we might reign with him one day when he returns. That indeed, Lord, you do love us and you want us, Lord, when we wander away from you to come back to repent and to be one with you. So help us also to hear you knocking at the door. If there's anything delusional in our thinking about where we're at, through your spirit, as you did with the church of Laodicea, confront us. Help us, Lord, in an inescapable way to, to come to know the reality where we stand truly spiritually. And Lord, we, we pray indeed that you'll open up our hearts wide to receive that invitation and to act upon it, to, to dine with Jesus, to receive his, his grace in terms of forgiveness, to be one with him, depending upon him for all things. And so, Lord, we, we thank you for the good gifts that you give to us. We thank you for the wealth and the comforts in this life in which we enjoy, especially in this century, in this place. But we pray, Lord, that you'll help us also to remember what you said to Israel, that when we live in fine houses and when we're comfortable, to not forget you. Forgive us when we have. 
And we ask, Lord, that you will indeed help us to remember that the ability to be comfortable, the ability to have the fine things that we have these days has come from you. Without you, we would not have these things. Also be of our church council. We thank you for the gifts that you've given to them, their wisdom, their insight. We thank you for the incredibly hard work that they do. And we pray, Lord, that you'll also protect them from apathy. Help them to go all out for the kingdom of God and for the, the good of this church. Help them to understand what your vision for this church is at this time. And help them, Lord, to, to pass that on to the congregation. And we pray, Lord, that the, the congregation, we as, as your people here, won't fall into the trap of just tapping the tire enough to keep it going. But we pray, Lord, that you'll help us to go all out for the kingdom of God. Help us not to go in pause, but help us, Lord, to have a heart that yearns to bring the lost to you. And so give us the means, Lord, the insight and, and the, the wisdom and the vision to see what you want us to do now in this place at this time. And as we do it, may it be for your glory. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.